Well, I'm back to my series, um, which I'm excited about, The Mysteries of the Kingdom is what I've entitled it. And of course, you know, um, at the risk of getting too deep in the review, let me just remind you that mystery is used in the Greek New Testament, the word mysterion, for things that we don't really understand. We have no revelation of Uh, We don't understand in the sense of logical, normal, human rationale. We don't get something. We just don't get it. And of course, the Bible is a mystery to anybody that is not saved. As we've said in the past, don't ever argue the Bible with people that aren't saved because they have no capacity to understand it. In Mark chapter 4, we're told that it's a closed mystery to them that are without, unless they be converted and their sins forgiven, and then they are entitled to what is true for you as a believer to know the mysteries of the kingdom. That's what we read in Mark chapter 4, that you are given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But it doesn't just happen because you're born again. You have a part to play in the process of positioning your life for understanding and revelation knowledge. You need to have knowledge, first of all, before you can have revelation of it. You can't understand something you never even heard about. So your part, first of all, is to study and read the Word, acquire the knowledge, and there'll be a lot of things you read in the Bible that, man, it's just... Like over your head, you don't get it. Well, put it on the shelf. Uh, But you've taken the first step toward understanding the truths that are going to most govern and impact your quality of life. They are truths about the unseen realm for the most part. And so basically, uh, you study, you learn what the Word has to say, you gather the knowledge, and then... You spend time with the Lord. We'll call it, you pray. You pray about it. You pray about things that you don't really understand. You just kind of hold them up to the Lord. Perhaps pray in the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to show it to you. But spending time with Him and allowing the indwelling presence of God uh, to begin revealing things to you is a step toward revelation. And thirdly, sitting under anointed preaching is a way that revelation will often come. Now, these are the things that you can do, and not necessarily a comprehensive list, but I think three of the biggies that you can do to promote continuing revelation in your life. Some things that God reveals to you are related to His timing for your life and the level of maturity Uh, You are at a given point in time. There's some things he could show you uh, that he could give you understanding of uh, that you're just not ready for. Uh, And of course, uh, I'm speaking in ways other than the process of reading and studying and maturing in the Word that way. Uh, It's probably, you know, there are things he's not going to show you because it's too early in his unfolding plan for your life. It would be something you couldn't manage properly or 
that would be overwhelming to you. So there's an element of God's timing is all I'm saying that's involved in the unfolding of mysteries, things that aren't profitable to your understanding. But now the Word talks about 10 different mysteries, and that's what I'm in at the moment. 10 things that God says are a mystery, and some of which He says, don't be ignorant of this. Some which are crucially important to the success in your walk with God. There are things that God's not hiding from you. He's hiding for you. There's great value imparted to something that you actually have to look for, dig for, work for a little bit. When it comes, it's like, just a huge step in your life in God. So there are things that God has hidden, not from you, but for you that will be revealed in its proper time. There are things that relate to your gaining more knowledge, your spending more time with the Lord. All of these are factors in the way revelation comes to you. But these 10 mysteries, uh, you know, we're going through them one by one And I'm going to be as sure as I can be that you don't understand these principles or these things uh, because you haven't heard it from the pulpit. I'm at least going to talk about what we can know and the revelation we should have, you know, of these 10 mysteries. And I started last week with uh, the, the most basic understanding I believe we need to function in the kingdom of God is uh, the mystery referred to as the plan of redemption. In a couple of weeks, I've spent on that. I wasn't in the pulpit last Sunday, so uh, two and three Sundays ago, I spent time on the mystery of the plan of redemption because it provides context for everything else you need to know. It's not just about The Lord going to the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, uh, spending three days and nights in the heart of the earth, then being raised to newness of life. Not just that. You could call that the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan. But the plan of redemption encompasses everything that's happened since the dateless past that began to derail the original plan that God had, and getting it back on track again. So it starts back before the dateless past, includes the rebellion of Lucifer, the the defeat of the hosts of hell by uh, Michael's leadership of the uh, remainder of the angels in heaven. It includes the recreation that uh, began to occur in Genesis 1 verse 3, the replenishment of the earth, because it had already been populated at one time in the dateless past. It goes all the way through Adam and Eve's having made the wrong choice. The earth, uh, the, the, the earth that was newly recreated, uh, you know, the ground itself being cursed now, and that man's time on this earth was going to be much more challenging. Goes, we went through his uh, covenant with Abram, the old covenant, the, the new covenant, that we are living in now and will be until the rapture of the church at the end of this dispensation. 
And then, you know, where we'll be uh, for the seven years of tribulation going on on this earth, the church is not appointed unto wrath. We won't be here. But where will we be? We'll be in heaven. Uh, you know, judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, good things, all good things. Returning with our Lord at the end of the seven-year uh, period of time that we call the tribulation period or the final seven years of the Jewish dispensation, which is what that is. And uh, we'll be returning with the Lord for the uh, final battle at Armageddon with Antichrist, his defeat, his being cast into hell for a thousand years, he and his demonic host cast into hell uh, for a thousand year period of time. He's not there now. He's the prince of the powers of the air right now. You know, we tend to associ associate hell in our thinking with the devil's home, uh, his location. He's not been there yet. And, um, but he will be uh, just prior to the millennial reign of our Lord, after his defeat at the Battle of Armageddon. He and his demonic host will be consigned there for the thousand years of Jesus' literal reign on this earth. For that thousand years, there will be no influence of evil. Uh, what a wonderful experience of human life on this earth. We won't be here. Uh, we'll be in glorified bodies beginning uh, our assignments and responsibilities in the eternal ages to come. Uh, but uh, at the end of that thousand-year period, Satan's going to be released again to deceive whom he may. And believe it or not, having lived without evil influence under the loving leadership of Jesus for a thousand years, there's still going to be people that he deceives. Deception is a powerful thing, much more powerful than you might, might suppose. And then there will be one final confrontation at the end of the millennium, uh, at which time uh, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, we're on the verge of the eternal ages to come, but before that can occur, the earth will be renewed or recycled, whatever you want to call it, by fire. And, uh, you know, I made a few corny jokes about that and recycling and all of that. But anyway, the earth will be renewed by fire at the end of that period of time and made a fit habitation for the Lord to transplant the capital city of heaven called the New Jerusalem, literally on the earth, and he will spend eternity with his, the apex of his creation, his man. And the eternal ages will unfold. Uh, we talked about what that looks like for uh, the two types of seed of Abram, Abraham, and we're told that we are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. But of course, the natural seed of Abraham through Isaac uh, are the Jews, the people of the first covenant. They have uh, an eternity that looks different than ours. Replacement theology is a huge deception. We cannot replace the Jew in the unfolding plan of God. Uh, this is another mystery that we're told we need to be aware of. And I'll talk about the mystery 
of the blindness of Israel in part to who Jesus was and some of the plan of God for their eternal destiny, their role in the eternal ages to come. These are things we need to understand. It gives us the big picture. You know, I've used the example before that uh, if you've ever put together a 2,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, you know, uh, you've got a picture on the box top to tell you what the finished product should look like. It'd be really hard to put that puzzle together if you didn't have any idea what the big picture was. Uh, Well, the same is true with the puzzle pieces of our life and the other mysteries that need to unfold for us and that we need to come to an understanding of. You know, what makes it meaningful is having this big picture. That's why the mystery of the plan of redemption is that larger context of understanding. All the way back into the dateless past when creation actually began all the way into the eternal ages to come. We did that in two Sundays. This Sunday, uh, we're going to switch gears to a different mystery. And uh, I would like for you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles, or if not, should be on the board there, uh, Colossians 1.26. And 127. Beginning in 126, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. And the next verse says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is called a mystery, and we are told that we are given to know these mysteries. Next to the plan of redemption, for those of us living under the new covenant, this seems to me to be the next most, uh, most uh, important understanding for us to have. The mystery that's referred to is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, again, uh, there's some terms that probably should be defined. Uh, When we talk about the glory of God, it's important that we think of the same thing. Glory can be translated and often is, is the heaviness, the weightiness of all good that God is. It implies uh, just heavy uh, with His presence and His goodness. There are many different definitions that I've heard given over the years, but the one that is most consistent with what I believe glory is, is the manifest, not just presence of God, but the manifest goodness of God, which of course embraces His presence. But when we read the word glory for our purposes during this message and thinking about it in the future. I want you to think of it as the manifestation of God's goodness. That is the manifestation of His glory. We talk about His manifested presence, yes. But we leave something important out if we don't say it in terms of His his manifested goodness. 
Because that's what he is. In every way and in every area. The goodness of God manifest in your life is you're experiencing the glory. Now, uh, you know, there's some other important points about this verse. Uh, you should see that uh, Christ in you isn't your experience of his manifested goodness. I mean, he's in you when you're born again. According to the Word of God, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who, as a member of the Godhead, brings with him God the Father and God the Son, because he's one with them. So by virtue of you becoming a temple of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit, you are also able to say, Christ is in me now, in the person of the Holy Ghost. He's in there. Now, because he's also referred to as the king of glory, Christ is the king of glory, that means the potential for your experience of a manifestation of God's goodness in every area of your life. Whether it's your body, whether it's your financial life, whether it's your business, whether it's your family, your marriage, your relationships, the potential for you to experience God's goodness, the manifestation of His goodness in all of these areas is always there because you are indwelled by the King of glory, Christ is in you. And it says because of who he is and because of his indwelling presence, it doesn't say you have the glory on your own life. He says you have the hope of it. The word hope needs to be defined. It means confident expectation. It's not just a slim chance that maybe you'll get to experience something. The Greek word for hope means expectation and parenthetically in the Strong's confident expectation. So because Christ is in you, you have the ability to walk through each and every day confidently expecting the hope of glory. Confidently expecting a manifestation of His goodness in every area of your life and especially wherever you need it because He is in you. You're born again. You can't argue with it. He is in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Word says. You may not feel like He's in there. You may not, you may not actually have any hope of His goodness being manifest in your life. I see a lot of that absent in believers' lives. People I know who are saved. But man, it's like they're hopeless. They have been covered up by fear or anxiety or uh, other things that, that aren't sourced from God. So just because He's living in you doesn't mean you're going to automatically experience 
His goodness, it doesn't even really mean you're going to automatically have an expectation of that goodness coming to you. You have to believe. First and foremost of all, you have to believe. I mean, it begins with salvation. That's available to you by the grace of God, according to the Word, but you appropriate it by faith. And everything that that grace makes available to you, you appropriate by faith. And God's goodness is not something any of us deserve in this natural life. So that's His grace. But you're going to appropriate it by faith or not at all. Now there are times that His goodness will just show up because He's a merciful God. He loves you. And He wants to assist you in your growth in Him. But you are to live by faith. Ultimately, come to a place where you can cultivate and focus your faith in different areas, you know, and sometimes you have trouble, more trouble with some areas than you do with others. But you are always able to appropriate the fullness of God's grace by your faith. So the first thing you have to know is you've got to believe this. You've got to believe, and it's not hard to believe that Christ is in us, I mean, because we, we know that according to the Word, we've been made temples of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled, at least by measure, by virtue of His being the agent of sanctification that turns you into a temple. But God wants you to overflow. So there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit that causes you to overflow with the presence and person of the Lord, meaning others can see Him in you and be touched by Him that is operating out of you. So if that's the case, and He is a member of the Godhead, He also represents the Father and the Son indwelling you. So you know that Christ is in you. You can follow the chain of thought through the Scripture that makes that a reality for you. But you have to believe it. You have to see it enough, get it down in you enough that it becomes faith. You really believe this. And then you have the capacity to be filled with an expectation of the manifestation of His goodness. Are you here? Because that's the final outworking of your faith. I've said that on many occasions. Expectation is different than faith, but it is the final outworking of your faith. When you so believe something that you expect it at any moment, that's when it's going to occur. And so that's what the hope of glory is all about. You're going to be experiencing God's goodness in your life. In the areas where you most need it, it's going to show up. But here's, here's the thing that makes it happen. This verse should go hand in hand with 2 Corinthians. Let me, let me do this before I go there. Let's just read this in the Passion, verse 27 in the Passion Translation. Living within you is the Christ who floods you with the expectation 
of the manifested goodness of God. This mystery of Christ embedded within us becomes a heavenly treasure chest of hope filled with the riches of glory for His people, and God wants everyone to know it. Isn't that cool the way that reads? But let's tack this on to another passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and I want to go back to the King James for this, because this is how you make the indwelling presence of the Lord uh, and who you are in Christ a reality. Right now, we've talked about Christ in you, the hope of glory. But it is you being in Christ that causes that goodness to show up. So conceptually, you have two things to deal with, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But then we're told over and over again that in Christ, we can do all things. That, you know, there are many things about being in Christ that make it clear that is not the same thing as Christ in you. And I used to look at it that way. Christ in you and being in Christ, well, they're, they're, they're just really, you know, different ways of saying the same thing. No, because being in Christ regards your identification with Him. That's what puts you in Christ. You may not identify with Christ's finished work, uh, you know, any more than the resurrection being uh, the payment for your sin. You identify with it to that degree. But there are degrees of identification with Christ. So there are degrees of being in Christ. How do you get from Christ in you to being in Christ? I think that's what this is. This isn't a bunch of semantics here. I want you to think with me about this. It says in the, in the Strong's Concordance, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Open face means the veil has been removed. All of the commentaries will tell you that. And it is the veil of religion. It is the veil of legalism and law. The law is the word of God, but in its initial giving, uh, you know, it's, it's something that was limited in its ability to bring liberty to humanity. Could provide a temporary covering for sin through that law and through the observance of all of the, the ritual that defines religion or religious endeavor. And the only thing we see in the, in the Old Covenant about who we are today were types and shadows. It's like a veil there by religion and natural considerations uh, that religion deals with. Uh, you know, that's what the veil is doing there. But the veil was rent. The day Jesus was raised from the dead, that he, was, that he brought captivity captive and uh, stripped the keys of hell and death from the enemy, the veil was rent. Meaning that in our covenant, we can see reality without looking through the veil of religious or natural consideration. That's what open face refers to. And it says when we look at it without the veil of religious distortion, and we continue 
looking as in a glass or a mirror the glory of the Lord. In other words, when we're not looking at things in a religious sense, we are to behold as in a mirror or a focus on our own life. That's who you look at in a natural mirror. You're looking at the glory. You are a representation intended to be a representation of God's glory, God's goodness upon this earth. And when you look in the mirror, whether it's a literal mirror and you're seeing yourself with all your spots and blemishes, you need to get by the natural religious things that keep you from penetrating the veil and see who you really are. You are a reflection of the glory of God. No, you're more than that. You are actually the image of Christ and you are increasing in His glorious goodness each and every day as you behold your life this way. This is how you have to behold your own life. This is you. When the veil is gone and you look at yourself in the mirror or if you're just considering your life, you are to consider the fact that the Lord's goodness is manifest in you and through you. You are that vessel that He's using to manifest His goodness and His grace. And as you behold yourself this way, you are actually changed from just being a reflection of His glory. You're actually changed into the same image from one degree of God's goodness to another degree of God's goodness. There's so much in these two verses that we're looking at, you could spend days letting the Lord show you these things. But this is what takes Christianity uh, from the unproductive, dead arena of religious endeavor into the life that God intends you to experience in the Christ that lives in you by identifying with Him to such an extent that you're changed into the same image as He is in and you will experience one degree of glory to another. I feel limited in my ability to communicate this. This has to be this has to be revealed by the Holy Spirit. But in talking about it, I'm believing that revelation is going to come. Because when you realize, really, you realize that you walk this earth just as Jesus Christ did, being a representation of God's goodness in every and all arena of life, your life will change dramatically. Let's look at this verse in the Passion. Passion translation of this verse. We can all draw close to Him with the veil removed from our faces. You won't draw close to Him until the religiosity and the natural considerations that religion focuses on is removed. And then you can draw close to Him. And with no veil, we all become like mirrors who brightly reflect the glory of of the Lord Jesus. But don't stop there. As this occurs, we are being transfigured into his very image as we move from one brighter level of glory to another. Wow. 
got to spend some time in these verses and in these passages. The Holy Spirit can reveal it a lot better to you than I can standing up here. But when you get this, you're truly, it's going to change the way you function in your life. If we were to go back to the King James rendering, let's do that for a moment. Go back to the King James. It says, with open face, beholding as in a glass. Now that phrase is defined as by Strong's as beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. So first of all, you're going to see yourself as a reflection of Jesus. But as you continue to behold your life this way. Now get this, that is in the continuous present sense. Just like Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You don't hear the word one time and you become a faith person. You have to begin addressing your belief system by continually exposing yourself to what the Bible says. This is the same concept in the continuous present sense. You need to constantly be aware of looking at your life this way. God intends you initially to be a reflection of Jesus' glory, the King of glory in this earth, God's manifested goodness. And as you focus there and continue to behold your life that way, you will be changed into the exact same image. It won't be a reflection anymore. You will be a channel of God's glory into this earth, God's manifest goodness into this earth. Man, this is really significant. To me, this is the the real essence of, of what renewing our minds is all about. I mean, because, you know, you're spiritually born again, made alive to God, a temple of the Holy Ghost. He takes up residence within you. But all of the spiritual truth that is in you has got to get out of you into this natural arena through your mind. Your mind filters what goes into you, into your heart, the word normally used for spirit, and it filters what comes out. And so it's not enough just for for him to be in you and you to know that. That's the starting point but it is for you to behold yourself first as a reflection of his glory being changed into his very image where at that point you're graduated from one degree of glory to the next as you stay in this place. Now this seems hard to, you know, hard to internalize if you don't think about it a little bit. The only way I know to discuss it any further is to talk about my own experience, and I'm not talking about my own experience like, hey, I got this deal figured out here. Uh, I'm the express glory of the revealed Christ. <laughs> I am. The Word says I am. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming at this that way. You know, but the way this takes legs has taken legs for me and actually changed the way I see things. And what I do behold and what I don't behold. 
and what I do here and what I don't hear. The way this has worked for me, well, we can't do this without going to Romans 12 too, so let's, let's go to Romans 12 too for a moment. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The perfect will of God is that you be transfigured, very similar to transformed. It's really the same root word, just a slightly different application. But as we see that transfigured into the image of Christ, well, that's going to involve renewing your mind. And of course, His perfect will is that you be in the image of Christ and a vessel of His manifest goodness in this earth. Amen? That's the perfect will of God. There are other little more mundane things that you would like to see His will include, which maybe is getting healed or uh, having a little more money that you can give to the work of the gospel and, uh, or having you know, um, better success with your relationships. But bo- bottom line is, The perfect will of God is that you reflect Jesus Christ in all of His glory and that you actually be changed into His image. As you do so, your life becoming a resource to God to generate His manifest goodness in this earth. And so it has to do with the renewing of your mind. And guess what? Renewing is in the continuous present sense. Just like hearing... In Romans 10, 17, just like beholding in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, renewing is in the continuous present sense. You do it. This is the way you think as much of the time as you possibly can. Now, the challenge we all face and where I can use the example of my life is that we've got to negotiate the natural requirements and responsibilities of the world that we live in. So it's not like you can sit in a corner somewhere focusing all your attention on who you are in Christ or the manifestation of His goodness. So basically, I have what I call uh, in my life times where I, do, where I do nothing but dream. I have a time in the morning And more recently, I have a time in the evening before I go to bed. When I dream, God dreams. Dreams that I believe align me with the will of God. Specifically, His will for my life and generally the larger will that His Word reveals to all of us. Which is to be a reflection of God's glory in this earth and to be changed into the image of Christ. So, I have this dreaming time. My time with the Lord in the morning as I've gotten older has gotten longer, not shorter. Because I've realized how unsuccessful my my endeavors are uh, the shorter my time with Him in the morning. And it can't be a religious time. When you read two chapters in the Word and pray a list of petitions and then go about your business. That's not a bad thing to do. Neither of those things are. 
But I think the, the most productive time for me has been my dreaming time. And that's the time when I shape my imagination. My imagination being my anticipated future experiences. Your imagination always deals with the future, not the past, not the present. You don't need to imagine those things. You know what they are. Your imagination deals with future probabilities. And yes, I like to imagine, and this is the dreaming process, uh, stepping into and living out the things that he has called me to do in my life, things that I don't have any question about. You know, a lot of things about this ministry, most of it through this ministry, you know, such as the nonprofit airline, I can dream there all day long. Uh, the development of the property up north, I can dream there all day long. The building of other campuses of this church, I can dream there a great deal. But I think the most productive dreaming that I do is of being conformed to the image of Christ. What is my life going to look like when I'm in that meeting today? You know, this would be one morning as an example. That meeting today with somebody that I know doesn't particularly care for me and that I'm in friction. I got friction going on with. Uh, you know, I think about and I dream about that meeting. Most every day, whether you're a mom raising children and having to get them in school and deal with their disciplinary challenges and all of those things, hugely important assignment. Or whether you're a business executive and you got meetings with your board of directors and your banks and other things to determine outcomes of, of your business. Uh, yeah, there are specifics that you would address, but mostly I think you need to address these challenges. You need to dream about how Jesus would address these challenges. Because you know what your day looks like a little bit about it before you go into it. You know what the challenges of most days are, who you're likely to be around, how smoothly you flow with them, the challenging relationships that you may be thrown into, or uh, just a myriad of things about every day that you know you're going to be dealing with. And so you begin to shape your plan, your strategy for that day in line with how you see Jesus dealing with those issues. He'll give you a strategy for your business meetings, but how are you going to relate to those people you're dealing with in a way that actually enables them to experience the goodness of God? Because this isn't all about the goodness of God that you're going to experience. The primary consideration is the goodness of God that you can bring to other people's experience when you spend your time with them. Think about how you're going to react to somebody's anger and accusation of you. Think about how you're going to correct somebody that really seriously needs correcting without making them feel condemned or rejected. How are you going to deal with the issues of your day and dream about 
how Jesus would have dealt with it. And you'll have a strategy for that day that's going to produce a lot better results, a lot more of what you want than anything else will. Yeah, it's not wrong to dream about your healing. It's not wrong to dream about God's goodness being manifest for you personally. But understand the power of first dreaming about being a reflection of His glory and changed into His image from one degree of glory to another for someone else's benefit so someone else can know the goodness of God. The power in doing it that way really releases, I think, even a greater um, blessing of God's goodness in your own life. This, you know, this is stuff that that uh, you're just going to have to think about. If you go home and you don't think about this message anymore or these verses anymore, then a lot of important impartation will be left on the table. You've got your own personal challenges that represent things you're going to renew your mind to. This is what I think renewing your mind really is all about. It's about renewing your mind to the fact that you are God's representation of His glory, His goodness, and the King of glory, Jesus, whose image you are to be transfigured into. This is what you need to renew your mind to. You're not an accident just going somewhere to happen. You're not subject to the role of the celestial dice. It all begins with what you believe. And you need to believe that this is who you are in Christ. You are a vessel of glory of God's manifest goodness to the world around you. So dream a little bit in the morning about how that's going to have its outworking today. And you know, when you start dreaming, you really may not. I mean, there are a lot of times I don't, well, I don't know what to dream today. Just repeat an old dream or build on it or what. You know, so you'll pray in the Holy Ghost a little bit. And the things that you're to focus on will seem to come more clear at that point. And as you dream about your day, how long does this take? It's different, you know, uh, every day. There's some days I can't make myself leave this place for a couple of hours. Uh, and, you know, I don't have a couple of hours to give any more than most of you do. So that's why I'm up early in the morning, so that if it takes a couple of hours, I got a couple of hours. The only thing I might have to shave a little bit is my workout program, which follows my, my dreaming time. I dream about my workout, by the way. I do. Well, I can do all things through Christ who what? strengtheneth me. Okay. Practical application. Let's see if I can go up and wait today. Let's see if I can go up in reps today. You know, I do a little dreaming about the workout, you know. Anyway, I didn't mean to get on that. But you do this about every arena of your life. I dream about what I'm going to eat. Not pecan pie. I dream about eating broccoli and fish. And not getting nauseated when I swallow it. <laughs> but you set the stage for your experience on any given day. And especially if you know you're going to have an interaction with somebody 
that has been contentious in the past that you don't generally move in agreement with. Think about the negative possibilities, and if they manifest, how would Jesus respond? Jesus doesn't roll over and give everybody what they want. I mean, there's some things you're going to have to say no to, to people, firmly. But there's a way you can do it without alienating them, condemning them, or making them feel rejected. I'm not going through these teachings. They're in the Word. I've taught them in leadership before. Remember, a soft answer turns away wrath. And if you get in an engagement where the tempers begin to flare, you need to go there immediately. Too often I don't. Too often I engage. And it never works out well. There are some people that just know how to push my button. And if I don't spend enough time in the morning foreseeing that possibility and emission within me a strategy for responding in a way that is not going to prolong the argument or the anger. And the soft answer always turns away wrath. Goodness gracious. Do you see what time it is? All right. Sorry about that. Uh, but this is something that's huge. Christ in you, the hope of glory, should not be a mystery unto you. Let the Lord fill in the blanks after you get home. Let's stand, please.